Welcome to Tent Talk, the podcast with Nancy McCready, where we talk about life under the big tent of God's presence and the provoking process of discipleship. Here we go. Hey, everybody, welcome to Tent Talk. This is Nancy McCready. Today's episode of one of my favorite reads, which is Ultimate Intention by Deverne Fromke. Oh, my friends. This is a great gift that I could give to every single person I know and to all those in the world. This is the chapter, Putting Love in Right Order. Oh, my friends, how we need this. We've always needed it, but I pray that you are seeing your true need for you being brought into the wine press where He, where he can put love in right order inside of you. Take a listen. I hope it encourages you on so many levels. Love you all. No words can describe this next of my favorite reads, Ultimate Intention, by Deverne Fromke. This book truly saved me because it took me deeper into the Word of God, into the Bible, in one of the darkest, most pivotal times of my life. So I simply want to read to you chapter 25, Love in Right Order. I hope that you will listen to this over time and let its truth sink into you. And I hope that you will embrace this work in the slow fire of God's love as he puts us all in right order. We have been carefully following the Father's program by which His children are brought to full sonship. We have seen how every vestige of anarchy must be dealt with before they are prepared for authority in the throne of the universe. However, before His body can have any real outreach to the world and be ready for the ultimate revelation, one more thing is necessary. This is the supreme evidence of the turning of our captivity— In this lesson, we pick up the theme of rectification again as we consider how he will set love in right order. I have always enjoyed the love story of the Song of Solomon, but it was not until a friend gave me the key to this book that I was able to comprehend the hidden lesson which God would teach us from it. The King James Version fails to give the clear meaning of the fourth verse of the first chapter, in the Latin Vulgate translation, we find this, quote, He brought me into the winepress and set love in right order within me. End quote. Comparison with other versions confirms this as an accurate expression of the meaning. Is it possible that this lovely book was placed in the Bible to teach the rectification of love? The story presents the intimate fellowship between the bridegroom and his bride. As we note on the blackboard, it shows how the love of the bride moves from plane to plane and is finally set in right order. In the early stages of the story, the bride is filled with self-love. Love seems to her to be a one-sided relationship in which the emphasis is on me and mine. As with all love in this stage, possessiveness is the mark and undertone within the relationship. In the second chapter, we hear the bride give the first summary of their relationship. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Song of Solomon 2.16 
She seems far more conscious of what he does for her and what he gives and is to her than she is conscious of him. She interprets everything, including him, as it relates to her. Alas, she soon sickens of this kind of love. Sensing this, the bridegroom withdraws. For her own good, he must not foster her selfishness. His wisdom works a change. There is a progression and purifying of her love. She comes at last to say, quote, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. End quote. Song of Solomon 6.3 The emphasis has changed, but there is still a mixture of getting and giving. Now she is becoming more conscious of him, the giver, than of his gifts and of what she can be to him. After she has stood the test of love, she finally is brought to the third phase. Love is purified and set in right order. She exclaims, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. End quote. Song of Solomon 7.10 Here is the perfect order. Love seeketh not its own. It is not possessive. Love is alive to the other and is always joyfully giving. The temper of love offered by a multitude of God's sons and daughters may be observed in the tenor of their prayer. Often, even 20 years after conversion, petitions still have the my and mine ring. There is still an emphasis on getting a blessing and beseeching God on the basis of self. Many have never known or have become insensitive to a true love relationship in which they live for and unto God. Three Degrees of Love In one of his excellent editorials, Dr. A.W. Tozer, editor of the Alliance Witness, writes about three degrees of love. He first points out that most Christian thinkers divide love into two kinds, love based on the gratitude and love based on excellence. The love that springs out of gratitude is found in such passages as Psalm 116.1, Quote, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, end quote. And 1 John 4.19, open quote, we love him because he first loved us, end quote. This is an entirely proper and legitimate kind of love and is quite acceptable to God, even though it is among the most elementary and immature of the religious emotions. Love that is the result of gratitude for favors received cannot but have a certain element of selfishness in it. This is much like the first attitude of the bride whose love is aroused, it seems, only by benefits received and does not seem to exist apart from them. But there is a higher kind of love, which Dr. Tozer describes as the love of excellence, the second stage of the rectification of love in the bride. This love is awakened by considerations of God's glorious being and has in it a strong element of admiration. Quote, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. End quote. Song of Solomon 5.10 and 16. This love of the divine excellencies differs from the love that springs from gratitude in that its reasons are more elevated. The element of selfishness is reduced almost to the vanishing point. We should note, however, that the two have one thing in common. 
they can both give a reason for their existence. Love that can offer reasons is a rational thing and has not attained to a state of complete purity. It is not perfect love. Next, Dr. Tozer goes on to describe that highest degree of love as it must be wrought in the bride. We must carry our love to God further than love of gratitude and love of excellence. There is an advanced stage of love which goes far beyond either. Down on the level of the merely human, it is altogether common to find love that rises above both gratitude and admiration. The mother of a subnormal child, for instance, may love her unfortunate child with an emotional attachment altogether impossible to understand. The child excites no gratitude in her breast, for all the benefits have flowed the other way. The helpless infant has been nothing but a burden from the time it was born. Neither can the mother find in such a child any excellence to admire, for there is none. Yet her love is something wonderful and terrible to see. Her tender feelings have swallowed the child and assimilated it to her own inward being to such a degree that she feels herself one with it. The sum of what we say here is that there is in the higher type of love a super-rational element that cannot and does not attempt to give reasons for its existence. It says not, I love because, it only whispers, I love. Perfect love knows no because. God, in the end, will work such a rectification of love in the hearts of all that are his. You will remember how he brought Job to say, quote, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. End quote. There was no because in Job's love. Job had been brought to a place of complete surrender because he came to know who God truly is. Like Job, each of his chosen ones will belong to God with the affection that clings to him for his sake alone. Just as God is willing to belong to man as his God, solo gratis, by grace alone, so each member of Christ's body will belong to God on the same basis for naught. The bride must love without ulterior motive. Paul's Longing for the Ephesians When we realize the church is to be prepared as a spotless bride for her Lord, we wonder if this might not be at the root of Paul's prayers in the early chapters of Ephesians. As we reach the middle of the first chapter, we become keenly aware that Paul was gripped by their need, and he longs for the Spirit of God to reveal it to them. We sense the groaning in his spirit as he twice breaks forth in prayer that the Father might grant this vision to be opened to them. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul gives a broad panoramic background of the ultimate intention which has been in the heart of the Father from eternity. Starting with the Father, Paul reminds them of his purpose for a vast family and discloses how they have been marked out for sonship. He shows how all these plans are being accomplished through the Lord Jesus, and then how we receive through him all spiritual blessings, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, redemption, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to this as our inheritance in Ephesians 1.14. Moreover, the father's family of individual sons ultimately becomes the corporate body of his son at the end of chapter 1 in verse 23. Through the heading up of all things in Christ, the father gave his son to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
We read this in Ephesians 1, verses 10, and then 22 and 23. The individual members of the family reach higher to become a union of the corporate body of Christ, the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. It was the Father's intent to make Christ the center and circumference of all things. It was His desire that sonship was to contain and express this universal fullness of Christ. We are not to minimize or overlook this inheritance, for the Father delights to share with His family. When man sinned, He provided the death and resurrection of His Son that we might be rescued from the fall. Yet, all God has provided for man to receive is not the primary concern of Paul. As he breaks forth in prayer, we can catch the burden of his heart. He wants the Ephesians to have a new and higher viewpoint. Before this point in time, it seems the Ephesians were occupied primarily with what God had done for them. They were content to camp in glory in what is mine. Their theme was my inheritance in him. How much they were like the majority of believers today. Now in verse 18, we hear Paul begin to pray that they might have the eyes of their understanding enlightened to see what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. How could these saints be brought to a concern for the Father and what he might inherit from them and through them? How could they be made alive to his interest? This is Paul's concern. In spite of all God had done for them, they were still inverted and man-centered. Must they continue to live as though all the Father's universe revolved around them and existed for them? Paul discerned the need for a rectification of their love, a turning of their captivity, so they would truly live unto God and become His inheritance. Recently, as we drove to an evening service, a father confided to me, The more I have given to my children, the more they want. What shall I do to help them see their selfishness? Although he loved his family dearly, he was able to observe that they were self-centered. While they were concerned with what their father could do for them, he was concerned more with what kind of people they were growing up to be. This man had discovered a basic truth on the human level, but was only faintly aware that the Heavenly Father experiences the same problem with his children. As my friend wished to jar his children from their self-centered way of looking at things, So the Heavenly Father longs that His children may have a revelation of themselves and what they are to Him. How does such a revelation come? Christ's death was the basis for receiving our inheritance. When we recognize that we died with Him, then the Father begins to receive His inheritance as we walk in newness of life. As in Solomon's song, the bridegroom led his bride to the winepress of frustration, sorrow, and self-revelation. So he will lead each member of his corporate body to a winepress. This is the place where he allows loved ones, circumstances, and friends to inflict the deepest pain. Throughout the scriptures, the winepress is always pictured as the place where God uses the crushing instrument, the squeezing process, the pouring from vessel to vessel to get rid of the dregs, all this so that he might bring forth the joyous wine of purified love. He brought me into the winepress and set love in right order within me. We are apt to relate all such experiences to some future glory which shall afterward be ours. 
we may bravely and with firmly set jaw pass through multiplied trials, never yielding to the work of love that will bring forth joy now. However, when the true rectification of love is wrought, we become alive only to the purity and sweetness which pours forth to him and to those who are also his. He, oh he, will eventually become the constant center and object of our affection and attention. Then, Christ's body and the Father's inheritance and the saints will become central in our concern. We see clearly what Jesus meant when he said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. No longer is our Christian life an endurance test. It is an experience of overflowing love. Our constant prayer will be, Lord, show me how I can express this great love thou hast brought forth within me. Here is the fullness of rectification. When his bride truly becomes his, the Lord Jesus finds her ministering to his welfare, concerned primarily with his interest. Christ cannot deliver the kingdom to the Father until the church becomes alive to his inheritance in the saints. Can we see it? As we center our vision on our own needs and try to believe God for them, we are blind to His great love and His great purpose. When we allow Him to take us to the wine press, we discover Him. We find we have no other need, no other desire, than to belong only to Him. For naught, for no reasons, for no becauses. Oh, my friends, this chapter in Ultimate Intention by Deverne Fromke, called Love in Right Order, transformed my world over 25 years ago. Oh, in this day and time, as it always has been, oh, how we need him to take us into the wine press and put love in right order. I pray that this has encouraged you. And that you'll let him work his love so deep in you that you will live the rest of your days simply living in him, with him, and for him. Love you all. For more information on Nancy, please visit nancymccrady.com or follow her on social media at nbmccrady.com.